Open passage today is Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's not something I want to say over the phone or by email. We need to meet face to face. Have you ever said that to someone? So perhaps you had something serious to say and it simply wouldn't do to make a call or write an email. You needed to meet. You needed to be close to that person so they could sense your emotions and your reasons for the discussion. There's something important about an actual meeting, isn't there? So even in this day and age of Skype and GoToMeeting and social media and your online personality, I think we all still feel the need from time to time to meet with others, to watch a football game, to eat a meal, to worship God. Inherent, I think, to our identity as human beings is this need to gather with others. And it's no different with the church. Today, we begin a three-week study, Lord willing, of our new vision statement here at Loudoun Valley. That is, as a church, we gather, we grow, and we go. Normally what we do here on Sundays is take a book of the Bible like we've been doing over the summer with 1 Timothy and walk through it chapter by chapter. That's our regular diet of studying God's Word. But for the next three weeks, we're going to do something a bit different and just pick three passages in Scripture that we believe will help inform what we think about gathering, growing, and going. So in the passage Kevin has just read for us, let's ask two questions this morning. Who is the church? And why does the church gather? First, who is the church? And notice I'm not asking what is the church. I'm asking who is the church. The church is a people. I think we see that in our passage. So there in verse 24, which is where, we'll, where we kind of find the idea of gathering in our text, we see the author of Hebrews start out verse 24 by saying, let us consider. But, but who is the us he is referring to? Back in verse 19, we see he addresses his readers as brothers. He's speaking to other Christians, isn't he? To brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and then he's going on in our brief passage. He goes on to show what is fundamentally different about Christians. What distinguishes us from everyone else. It's not how we live. It's not who we vote for. It's not what rules we follow in life. It's the access we have to God. The book of Hebrews as a whole 
we're jumping in here in verse in chapter 10, but as a whole, Hebrews is one long sermon that shouts from the rooftops, Jesus is better than anything else. And part of the way the author proves that is by reminding his readers, reminding us what it looked like for God's people, Israel, to gather with God, to approach God in the Old Testament. So back in Hebrews 9, right before our chapter this morning, uh, the author, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, so we just call him the author. The author talks about the tabernacle or, or the tent where God met with his people, where he revealed his holiness and showed his people how majestic and and good he was. In the tabernacle, God would descend. He would stoop to meet and gather with his people because of his perfect character and their imperfect nature. He demanded they bring sacrifices. They bring blood as sort of the, the password to the holy tabernacle. Blood shed to cover their sins so they could be made right with him. Part of this tabernacle included a room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And we read about that in chapter 9, verse 7. You can scan there with your eyes. Into that place, into the most holy place, the writer says, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. See, God was so holy that only one person could go into the most holy place to meet with him. And that one person could go only once a year. And he could only go once a year if he brought a sacrifice. And he could only bring a sacrifice if it covered his sin as well as the people's. This was the only way to approach God. But then later in chapter 9, we read of this seismic shift that had occurred. See there in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Doing what? thus securing eternal redemption. See, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus did what no human priest could ever do. Every other priest had to deal with his own sin before he could go and intercede for the people's sin, but Jesus had no sin. He was the perfect priest. And so he took our sin on himself and shed his perfect blood for us accomplishing our salvation, giving us access back to God. So, in light of those nine chapters of arguing these points, this fantastic truth of the gospel that's almost too good to believe as you read through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews then turns to us, to the church, and he says, since all that is true, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by that blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us gather with God. He points to Jesus. 
He says that since Jesus has drawn near to God in our place and has shed his own blood for our souls, we can now follow the path that he trailblazed for us into that holy place, into heaven itself, through this new and living way he's opened to God. He calls this way new, meaning it didn't exist before. He calls this way living, ultimately showing that he himself is the way. As our living Savior, remember what he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he accomplished all this by laying down himself as a sacrifice for sinners. You see there that we have access through Jesus, through the curtain, that is through Jesus' flesh. You might remember the curtain tearing in two in the tabernacle or in the temple when Jesus died, symbolizing that the separation between sinners and a holy God had been wiped out, that we were ac given access to God. And how did that happen? By Jesus' flesh being torn in two. Because of his perfect sacrifice, we're accepted by God. See, church, gathering with God is not a casual thing. Gathering with God, meeting God face to face, is only possible for us because he sent his son to die. In Christ, because of what Christ has done, we now go into God's presence joyfully and boldly. It's like, it's like that old slogan from Star Trek, right? Boldly going where no one has gone before. Christian, that's what Jesus has done for us. He who was God became like us and went where no man had gone before, laying down his life and granting us access to God, access in prayer, in fellowship, in the forgiveness of sin. See, be before going into God's presence in our sin, into his consuming, the consuming fire of his holiness with no perfect priest to go before us, to mediate for us, would have been a death wish, a kamikaze mission. You can even read accounts of people in the Old Testament who approached God flippantly and with, without awe and were killed by God for it. Not because God is some kind of ogre, but because he's God. Approaching him is no small matter. Gathering with God is no small matter. He's holy. Our sin can't live in his presence. But now Jesus has gone where we could not go. He's lived the life we could not live. What a savior. By becoming like us, Jesus made a way for us to become like him. Accepted welcomed in by God, telling us to call him Father. There in verse 22, in light of this truth, we're to now draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As Christians, we are those who have drawn near to God, only through Christ. We are those who have had our hearts washed clean. 
Verse 23, we see another let us command. The writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's like we sang just earlier, immovable our hope remains. Built into Christ, secure we stand. I love the image that the writer of Hebrews says earlier when he compares our hope in Christ to an anchor sunk deep into the ocean floor, stabilizing our lives in all the storms we encounter and all the winds that batter our faith. Our hope is not only in Jesus, our hope is Jesus. Our hope was was embodied and fleshed in Christ as he walked before us into God's presence and was accepted, made a way for us. See, Jesus has done that, and we can too, because we're united to him. God has promised us salvation, and by his very nature, he's not going to renege on that promise. Whenever he speaks, he acts. So his promises are as good as done the moment he makes them. So who is the us there in verse 24? The sermon's about gathering, which we get to in verse 24, but we needed to first define the us. The us is all those who have drawn near by the blood of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who have been ushered into God's presence, holy and blameless, both now and forever. The us is the church. The church is not a mere voluntary religious organization, a social construct of the Western world. The church is a family who gathers because someone died so we could do that very thing. Jesus died for us. He died for his universal church, right? The church that he's gathering over history from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But as we continue to read in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, we see that as soon as he died for that church, When he rose again and ascended into heaven, his church began meeting in local displays of that universal church. Local churches coming together to hear his word preached, to pray together, to sing together, to watch over one another. The local church is a gathering of those who have drawn near. If you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps this idea of what a Christian is and what a church is, is for is new to you. Perhaps you always thought being a Christian was about not cussing or not being immoral or obeying the Ten Commandments. It's not. Being a Christian most fundamentally is not about what you do. It's about who you are. So are you one who has been brought near to God through Christ? Have you trusted, not in your own good works, but in his good work for you, dying in your place, giving you access to God? Dear friend, your relationship with God is of paramount importance. And Jesus has died to give you access to God, to that one who created you, who loves you, who can give you a hope and a future. Turn to him, repent of your sin, and trust in what he's done. If you have questions about that, please Talk to somebody next to you afterwards. Talk to me. We'd love to share with you more about what it means to draw near to God. 
So the church isn't a building. It's not a what. It's, it's a who. And when a sinner turns from sin to Christ, he is joined to Christ and to the body of Christ. That is the church. When a sinner turns from Christ, sin to Christ, he is able now to gather not only with God, but with God's people. The gospel reconciles us not only to God, but to one another. And so as Christians, part of the way the gospel impacts us immediately when we turn in faith to Christ is to join us to Christ's church, manifested in local gatherings. So if that's who the church is, why do we gather? Why does the church gather? Look there in verse 24. The writer says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So that's the third let us command in this passage. First, we're to draw near. Second, we're to hold fast confession of our hope. And now the author writes, we're to consider how to stir up one another. That's the first reason we see here for why we gather. We gather to stir each other up. That word for stir up means to provoke. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament in a negative way, to show conflict. But here we see it in a gloriously positive light. We see here that as a church, we gather to agitate each other, to motivate each other, to encourage each other, not to live sedentary spiritual lives, not to fall away into gradual spiritual inertia. You know the feeling. It's the end of the day. It's probably a Monday. You've worked hard. You're tired. Maybe you have kids and they're finally in bed. Maybe you are a kid and your parents have finally stopped telling you you need to do things. And at that moment, as you sink into the couch, it just swallows you up. There's hardly any way to get you up unless the house is burning down. And, and while there's nothing wrong with that, I, I love doing that. There's nothing wrong with good rest and leisure, especially after a hard day's work. I find that the longer I'm in that state, the harder it is to get me out of it. I think sometimes we get like that spiritually, don't we? We become sedentary. And our affections for Christ slowly wane. We grow inert in our passion for the gospel. We need somebody to wake us up. Without someone to stir us, we're in a dangerous spot. We may never rise again. And the answer to that spiritual drift, to that danger that we see here in Hebrews, is to gather, to meet together, to join with our family in Christ so we can encourage one another, so we can warn those who are straying, so we can comfort those who are grieving, so we can love those who are struggling. We're a family. And so we gather together to care for our family. I mean, what's a Thanksgiving dinner without family? What's a church without family? As an aside... This is one of the reasons that we have a principal conviction here at Loudoun Valley 
to never, unless it, it's for a very short time for space purposes, to hold two separate morning services. Because we understand that that would be like dividing up our family. It's also why we think having satellite campuses and multi-site churches is ultimately harmful. Because all those different campuses are not really gathering together. They're separate gatherings. They're separate churches. We firmly believe that church is not an event we attend. It's a family we gather. To go even further, Joe just talked about community groups, and we're really excited about them. We'll talk about them more next week when we think about growing. But even community groups are no substitute for the weekly church gathering. Here in our weekly gathering, we come together. We hear God's word preached with authority. We submit to elders. We celebrate baptisms. We partake of the Lord's Supper. We don't do those things in community groups because the family isn't gathered. We do them here. So that's the first reason we gather. We gather to stir each other up. And I love how it says, let us consider how to do that. Because it's not just going to happen naturally. It will take careful thought for us to know just how to stir up our brothers and sisters, won't it? It it will take wisdom to know how to care for that sister who is deeply discouraged and how to care for that brother who is in defiant sin. Stirring up those two different people will look differently. But stir up we must. Consider we must. Stir up to what? To love and good works. This is why we must not neglect meeting together. I mean, it's easy to neglect church gatherings, isn't it? Think of all the reasons you have not to come on Sunday morning. There are a plethora of them. I have them. I just can't do that. Woody Allen once famously said, 80% of success is showing up, but for some reason we don't apply that to the church. Hopefully 100% right there. Laziness, offense from another member, hypocrisy we see in the leadership, the fact that people aren't like us, busyness, fatigue. We use these excuses to not gather. Maybe you're prone to thinking that your spiritual growth is hampered by the church, by those who are less mature, that you're better off with your Bible and Jesus. Ultimately, I think the the main reason we don't gather is because we just don't believe that God's good design for his church is good and is for our good. That his design of a local body joined together for stirring up and persevering to the end is needed for our soul's health. Dear church family, this is true. It is true that gathering together is important, even essential for us to persevere. Sadly, and I'm sure we've seen this not only in churches that we've been in the past, but any churches we've been in the past, that one of the first signs of falling into sin is falling away from gathering. And I'm the first to say, this church may not be the best fit for you. I don't know. 
But if you're a Christian, you must gather in a local church because it's God's design for your spiritual growth. And really, it's not just for you. It's for your brothers and sisters. It's for us. So if you're a member of Loudoun Valley, you've come this morning not just for you. You've come for me. You've come for the person sitting next to you. You're serving in nursery, not to give yourself a spiritual pat on the back, but for other parents to gather here and listen to God's word. You, you sing loudly praises in our hymns, not only to thrill your own soul from what you've suffered this past week, but to fill my ears, to fill your brothers and sisters' ears with your joy. That, this is a group thing we're doing. So dear family, how are you doing at stirring up? We're called to consider this. We're called to strategize, to meditate, to ponder, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand how we might stir others up. Do you strategize? Do you strategize how to care for others at Loudoun Valley? eh? For example, do do you use your devotions during the week, not only as a way to spur yourself on in spiritual health, but as a way to pass on your encouragement to others. Church member, can you point to somebody else in this church who is stirred up in their love and good works because you're here? Or to stir one another up. But there's one more reason the author gives at the end there in verse 25. He says, we're to gather together to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. The day, capital D, ultimately points to the return of Christ when he will come as judge and king and savior. So how are we to be prepared for that day? How are we not to be taken by surprise when it arrives? We're to gather together. As we anticipate Christ's return, our anticipation should show itself in how committed we are to a local church. So Christian, do you think about that day? Martin Luther said, there are two days in my calendar. This day and that day. Luther was ready. Are you Here's how one author puts it. It is indeed the habit of some Christians to neglect meeting together. In doing so, they miss out on encouragement. They miss out on being spurred on to love and good works. But that's not all. Their vantage point on God's work in the Christian life shrinks. Their confidence and their confession of hope wanes. Their memory of God keeping his promises fades. And their once clear-eyed vision of the coming day of the Lord blurs to black. Dear church, be warned and be encouraged not to neglect meeting together. How can you be sure you're ready for Christ's return? How can you be sure you won't tell lies to yourself and fall into sin? By surrounding yourself with people who are in covenant with you. 
to care for you, to tell you the truth, to point you to Christ. As that day draws near, we draw near to God and to each other. And we do so by gathering in local churches. And and get this. When we do gather as a church family together, we display something about the gospel we could never display on our own. By offending each other and forgiving each other, by being so different and yet united in Christ, by sacrificing our personal preferences for church for the good of the whole, we are showing in a powerful presentation the unifying and reconciling power of the gospel. So let's not neglect gathering together to show the world that image of Christ's love. Let's not lose heart. When church becomes weary, let's remember what it's here for. It's not here to set up chairs and audio. It's not here for childcare. It's not here for food. It's here so that we can link arms and walk together and persevere and endure until the day comes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this encouragement this morning. We ask that you'd help us not to rely on our extroverted personalities or our sense of religious duty or, or guilt or anything like that to keep us coming together on Sunday mornings. No, instead, help us to fill our minds with the beauties of Christ and how with his own blood he bought his church. Help the vision of the beauty of Jesus and the love he has for us to propel us on, to keep us meeting, to keep us together, to hold us fast. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.